heightens oneself, so bravery or strength in the face of pain and grief. Um, courage can be defined as the choice and willingness to confront pain, agony, danger, uncertainty or intimidation. Um, so when we look at vulnerability then, um, it can be defined as not a weakness as perhaps we may have learnt as we were growing up, but it is a great measure of courage. So when we think of vulnerability and being vulnerable, we think of, you know, why, why are we afraid of it? Um, it tends to be thought of as quite a dark emotion, um, being vulnerable. It's something that is, is not um, something to, that is a positive thing in a lot of people's life, but um, through a lot of research and things, they, we've learned that it is actually a very positive emotion um, and it can be quite difficult for us to kind of get to that, that place of that. So what we tend to do then to protect ourselves against these feelings is we tend to put on armour um, to protect ourselves so that we don't get hurt by it. Um, but while we, while we do that to try and pr protect ourselves, we must remember that um, although vulnerability is at the centre of our difficult um, emotions at the same place it's also at the centre of our positive emotions as well. So um, it's, at a, it's vulnerability is in the place where we experience, it, from that we experience joy, love, belonging, connection um, and empathy and that kind of thing. So when we look at um, vulnerability, we, there's a lot of myths around it um, and I think if I ask you what do you think of vulnerability as, what would, what would spring to your mind? Vulnerability, the way you've been brought up to think. A lot of people, yeah, hurt. Um, weakness, uh, a lot of those kind of things. You know, when when I know as a child, and I'm like, my parents raised me very well, but as, as a child it was, you know, you don't be vulnerable, you don't show emotion. That's, you know, it's a weakness, it's not what you do, you'll get hurt. You know, you've got to be strong, you've got to show that you're coping, you've got to show that everything's okay. Um, but when we think of what actually defines vulnerability, um, vulnerability is things like asking for help. So if you're stuck somewhere and you ask for help, that's being vulnerable because it's, it's putting you in a place where you've got to ask someone for help. Uh, vulnerability is saying, I don't know if someone asks you something. Vulnerability is loving someone who struggles with addiction. Um, Vulnerability is getting a promotion or getting a position that you don't think that you're capable of, but you know that you're going to have you're going to try and make it work. Um, vulnerability is taking responsibility if you make a mistake. Um, and when we think of these examples, in any of those examples, do you think of weakness? No. Um, you know, if you if you talk to someone who's lost something or been through a traumatic event you know that there's nothing you can say that's going to make it better. But putting yourself out there and ringing them anyway, that's being vulnerable. That's putting yourself out into a place where you're connecting with them. And that's not weakness. It's showing up as being present. Um, it's, it's a very accurate measure of courage. Um, so to be vulnerable, to let yourself be seen, is actually very difficult. So to be vulnerable and to feel vulnerable, we need to allow ourselves to rumble with vulnerability in ourselves. Um, the def definition of vulnerability is risk, uh, uncertainty and emotional exposure. And the truth is if we are brave enough, often enough, we will fail. That's a fact of life. Um, if 
if you've never failed in life, I take my hat off to you because I've certainly failed many times. Um, but that's just what happens when you put yourself out there, when you try something new. You will fail, it's a guarantee. Um, and it's, it's about saying, I know I'm going to fail at some point, but I'm still going to go all in. I'm still going to put myself out there and do something. So with, with all the research and everything over the years, it's been proven that th there is no evidence that vulnerability is a weakness. Uh, it's, it's a strength. Um, are vulnerable experiences easy? No. Um, do they make us feel anxious or uncertain? Yes. Uh, do they make us want to protect ourselves and guard ourselves and put armour on? Absolutely. Um, does showing up for these experiences with a, a whole heart and no armour take courage? Always. Um, so for us to be vulnerable and brave, we have to avoid the critics that are looking at us from the side and step in there anyway. Uh, there's a quote uh, by Theodore Roosevelt. Um, it's called The Man in the Arena. Let me read that to you. The, it says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the man, how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcomings. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So it's a really um, empowering kind of quote. So what's important for us is to get clear on whose opinions matter and seek those opinions and not take on opinions of, of critics who aren't willing to to hop in there and, and have a go with us. Even when it's hard to hear, uh, it's important to bring in the opinions of those who we value um, and hold on to them until we can learn for it. No matter how much our own self-doubt may want to scoop up criticism um, from other people um, and hold negativities to confirm our own fears, we need to take a big breath and to find strength um, to leave what is negative and mean-spirited on the ground. It doesn't deserve our energy. It doesn't deserve us engaging in it. We need to, we need to be vulnerable and put ourselves out there. Um, C.S. Lewis said, I don't know if I put that. C.S. Lewis said, uh, to love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. If you wrap it carefully and avoid all entanglements, lock it in a coffin of your selfishness, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable. To love is to be vulnerable. So if we're going to love each other and love other people, it's just loving is being vulnerable and putting ourselves out there. So when we think of putting ourselves out there and being vulnerable, there's a lot of myths that make us think different things. So I'll, I'll just go through some of those myths. I put them there. So, uh, like we said before, one of the main myths about vulnerability is that it's a weakness, um, which it's not. Um, it's asking for help. It's saying, I don't know. Um, it's making decisions about life after you've been given a terminal cancer diagnosis. Um, vulnerability can be initiating intimacy with a partner. Uh, it can be taking responsibility for your actions. They're not weak things. 
um, and they're not weaknesses. Um, showing up and being present to people around you is not a weakness, um, it's an active measure of courage. Um, it's about letting yourself be seen even when it's difficult. Um, the, other, the other day at, at work, someone had rung up and they'd asked for advice and I'd given them advice and I'd gone, yep, yep, this is fine, this is fine, you don't need to do this, it's absolutely fine. And I hung up and I talked to a couple of my colleagues and I said, oh yeah, you know, this lady rang up and she asked about this and I told her that's fine and they said, oh, actually, that's, we would normally recommend this. And I thought, oh no, what do, what do I do now? Do, should I ring that person back and tell her I was wrong? But, you know, I'm the professional here, she's rung me for advice and I've given her the wrong advice, I don't know what to do, should I just leave it and hope that it all turns out okay? But it, it didn't sit with me well, so I, I rang her back and I thought, oh no, what if she's going to get really angry, you know, why did you tell me that if it's not true? And she was really good about it and I just said, look, you know, I, I spoke about this, but I talked to some of my colleagues and we, you know, actually I think this is the better thing to do about it. And it's really hard. It's really hard to, to acknowledge that you've done something that's wrong, uh, especially in, you know, when you're, you know, a leader in a family or in a professional sense, it's really hard to acknowledge that and to do something about it, but it is really important to do and it shows um, that you are being courageous about it and it, it is vulnerable, it's putting yourself out there and it's putting yourself, you know, open to criticism and everything like that, but it is really important to do nonetheless. Uh, another myth about vulnerability is um, just that general, I don't do it. Um, so, you know, when someone says, you know, put yourself out there, something and just go, no, no, I don't, I don't do emotion, I don't do vulnerability, um, I don't do anything emotional, lovey-dovey, anything like that. Um, that was me for a lot of years. I'm very um, brave, stoic, um, that kind of thing. So, I don't, I just never used to do that. Um, and a lot of the time when we say things like I don't do vulnerability, it's, it's often followed by a certain gender. So men tend to do it quite a lot. Um, I, don't, I don't do vulnerability because I'm a guy, I'm a man, I don't do it. Um, or perhaps certain professions, um, you think of like um, a lawyer or someone really high profile, they can't, they can't afford to be vulnerable because, uh, you know, they've got, to, they've got to hold it together to be able to achieve what they need to achieve. Um, but... It, in itself, it, it involves risk, uncertainty and emotional exposure. Um, so the truth is that we all do it every single day, whether we want to accept that we do it or not. Um, so you think of it this way. Put your hand up if you love somebody. If you love somebody, anybody, even an animal. Yep. Um, now, put your hand up if you have control over whether they love you back. You don't. The truth is you don't. Um, so love is vulnerability. It's, it's putting yourself out there. It's showing up, letting yourself be seen. Um, if you don't do vulnerability, it will do you. Um, you know, when, when we're young, we think maybe when we're more grown up, we can do it. But when we grow up, it's actually to, to accept um, vulnerability that's already there. Um, when, when we're young, we tend to be... Um, you know, we tend to have no fear, we are vulnerable, we will dance in front of anybody. You think of, I can think of my kids, they, they stand there at home, they will dance, they'll be silly, they'll do everything like that. And then we reach this point in our lives when we start to notice that and then someone says something or we get hurt and so we start to shut those things off and we become more closed off and we become 
we hide ourselves away because it's painful and it hurts. And then we get to a point later on in life where we say, actually, I want to be vulnerable. How do I do that? And you've got to open up all those things that you've shut off over your life and allow yourself to feel those things again. And it is really difficult. Um, And the longer they've been shut for, the harder it is to open them all up again. The third myth there is that you can do it alone. Um, You can't. Uh, (laughs) The long and the short of it is you can't do it alone. You need a support system. Uh, When you're vulnerable, you're all in. Um, It's much more courageous than hiding your feelings. Um, The problem is that needing no one uh, pushes against everything that as humans we're wired to to feel. Um, Human neurobiology shows that we're hardwired for connection with other people. we need authentic connection, and without connection, we suffer. Um, uh, being silly together, having fun together with other people, that's being vulnerable. It's connecting with people. Um, and when you do that, you allow people to not only love you for who you are, but love you not, you know, not because of the vulnerability, but despite of it. You know, despite the fact that you can be silly and goofy, you realise that the people close to you love you because of that. Um, and that's, that's what connection is. We need, we need other people. We can't do it by ourselves. Uh, often when we think of vulnerability, we, you know, when you look at somebody, if you're looking at, say, your partner or something like that, you think, you know, I want you to be vulnerable with me. So it's the first thing you look for in somebody else when you're talking to somebody. But... Um, is the last thing you want them to see in you. Uh, but it is, it is that connection. We've got to both be able to do that, to be able to have a meaningful relationship. Um, when we look at other people, you know, vulnerability in someone else looks like courage. But when we look at it in ourselves, we think of it as a weakness. So it's about um, learning to, to combat those things. The fourth myth there is that you can take uncertainty and discomfort out of vulnerability. Um, People have tried, there's no app for it. There's nothing you can do to make it more comfortable, to make it easier. Um, It is uncomfortable. Um, And no matter how we approach it, um, no matter how we try to strip it down, um, we will have risk, uncertainty and emotional exposure in every relationship that we're in. Um, If we can develop courage building skills, that we need to have vulnerability, then we can have the capacity for something much more deeply human that machines cannot uh, find and cannot make something for. Um, another myth there is trust become uh, trust comes before vulnerability, um, or that you can trust somebody without being vulnerable with them. Um, betra- betrayal of trust really is disengagement with something. So. Um, if we ask you to go out and try being more vulnerable about something, you may feel afraid, you may feel apprehensive, um, but that's what, that's what trust is. And trust is a, it's a slow process of give and take and building something up. So um, you might ask yourself, how do I know uh, if I can trust someone enough to be vulnerable with them? Um, can I build that trust without ever being or risking vulnerability? Um, the truth is that in order to be vulnerable, we need trust, um, but in order to trust, we need to be vulnerable. So it's a give and take. Um, you think of when somebody may have broken your trust, um, 
you know, when you may have told someone something, you know, when you're a teenager and you tell them something and it's, you know, you tell them these secrets and then the next thing you know, everyone in your class has found out or everyone around you has found out and it's broken a trust and you just go, right, I'm never trusting anyone again. But then you think of all the people in your life that you can trust, um, the little things, and that's what that's what's important is all these little things that make trust work, it makes relationships with people work. So, um, you know, you, somebody might have told your big secret to everyone, but then you think of the people close to you, um, the things that you trust and value about them. Yeah, it's, you know, it's things like when you look at the people you value the most, what is it that you value about them? It's not these big grand things, it's the little things that they do in your life that makes you feel um, worthy and feel loved. Um, it's things like remembering your birthday, uh, remembering your parents' names, saying hello to you, looking after your animals, all that kind of thing. It's all those little things that add up to make, um, to build that trust up. It's built in small moments, um, but like little trust earning behaviours. Trust and vulnerability grow together, so to destroy one or betray one is to destroy both. And the, the last myth I've got there about vulnerability is that vulnerability is oversharing. Um, vulnerability is telling everyone everything, letting it all hang out, and that's me being vulnerable. Um, this is a difficult one, but the truth is that uh, if you share about your feelings and experiences um, with people, you should share them with people who've earned the right to, to hear them. Um, it requires boundaries and it requires trust. Um, it's not a marketing tool, it's not an oversharing strategy. Um, it's about learning that rather than walk away from a situation that feels us makes us feel uncertain or something that's risky um, or making us feel emotionally exposed, it's about, um, you know, we should be clear about our intention we should understand the limits of it uh, and the context in roles and, and boundaries, set boundaries. Um, if you have vulnerability without boundaries, uh, it's confession, it's manipulation, it's desperation, shock and awe, uh, but it's not vulnerability. So what we do then we find is that to, to when we are becoming vulnerable, we tend to armour ourselves up with things to protect ourselves from getting hurt. Um, it's not always something we want to reveal about ourselves. A lot of people like to keep their vulnerability hidden, um, hidden from the outside world, uh, and we we learn to protect ourselves from that as we grow up. Um, we we learn how to make ourselves scarce, um, even to disappear as children. You know, keep quiet, all of those kind of things. But when you're an adult, you realise that you need to live with purpose and courage, um, and connection, and to be that person that you long to be. Um, and to do that, you have to make, you know, allow yourself to be vulnerable. So we've got to take all that armour off, um, put down the weapons and um, be seen. So I'm going to touch on three types of armour. Um, the first one there is foreboding joy. I don't know if anyone knows what that means. It's a bit of a funny type of word phrase. Um, but it's a feeling you get when you're happy, but then that happiness is followed by a quick sense of dread straight away. Um, I'll give you an example. She uses this example um, in something I listened to, uh, this researcher. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story. Okay, I'm going to lead you into a story. So it's Easter long weekend and you're going over to the York Peninsula 
when there's a lot of traffic and you're on the freeway and you finally get through Port Wakefield and you're like, phew, got through Port Wakefield and you're travelling along and you're all in the car and you're happy. You got mum, dad, you got the kids. Favourite song comes on the radio. Everyone's singing along, everyone's happy. There's this real sense of joy in the car. And then just imagine you see that car, it's going down the freeway. What happens next? What happens next? What do you think is going to happen next? So you think of this, you think of truck, crash, accident. Why do we do that? Why do we think, jump straight to these most negative, terrible things? That's foreboding joy. So that's, that's when you have a happy situation, you have joy, and then the first thing you think of is losing it. It's all over. It's a big accident. And we do that. Um, we do that when you... When you, when you look at your children at night and you think, I'm so lucky, I've got you, I'm so lucky, I'm so blessed, and then you look at them and you imagine something terrible happening to them. It's not that you don't love them, it's just this, that it's what they describe as foreboding joy. Um, and it shows that when you feel most vulnerable, um, when you're feeling these negative emotions, you actually feel most vulnerable when you experience positive emotions such as joy. And joy can be described as one of the most vulnerable emotions to feel. Um, and through studies, they've realised that more than 90% of people feel foreboding joy in every area of their life on a daily basis. Why do we do it? Because we're not hardwired for the graphic images that we're exposed to in daily life. Um, Put your hand up if you've, in the last week, seen uh, a graphically violent image. Put your, put, leave your hand up. Put your hand up if you've watched um, a criminal show, NCIS, um, Law and Order, um, something, you know, those murder mysteries that come on, those research things where, you know, if someone goes missing and they're kind of researching into how it is. Put your hand up if you read the newspaper fairly regularly. Keep your hands up, everyone else. Put your hands up if you watch the news. Okay. So all of these things, you can put your hands down now, all of these things are things that we see, these images that we see, but we're not designed to see such graphically violent situations. And so when we see it, um, we become a little bit immune to it or numb to it. And so because we're humans are quite visual people, we tend to file these pictures away in the back of our brain. And so then when we experience joy, which is one of the most vulnerable things we feel, these images come back. And so along with joy comes this fear of something graphically violent happening or something terrible happening. And that's what that feeling is. So that's something that we do. Um, so is it essentially it's us trying to protect ourselves. Um, so it's that feeling, if I can... If I can somewhat predict what's going to happen, so if I can um, kind of dress rehearse it or, you know, if I know that if someone knocks at the door and tells me something's gone wrong, I'm going to be okay because I've, in my mind, I've figured out and I kind of know what's going to happen if that happens. But the research shows it doesn't matter how prepared or dress rehearsed you are for tragedy, when you get that knock on the door, you're never going to be prepared for it. Um, but instead, what, what doing what foreboding joy does is it stops us from experiencing our full joy uh, in the everyday things in life. One of the greatest dangers that you can feel with this type of armour um, is that you 
slip into experiencing life through a lens of constant disappointment. You don't allow yourself to feel joy all the time. You allow yourself to be a bit disappointed, um, even to the point in, in some people that instead of feeling joy, you just feel pain. Um, and the tragedy of this is that you become starved for joy, um, but unable to be with the vulnerability that would allow you to access that joy. One of the tools we can do to um, combat this um, is shifting perception, allowing the fear of vulnerability to remind you what you've got to be grateful for. Um, gratitude has proven to be a very common practice for those who can really embrace vulnerability and joy a lot. Um, on a deeper level, these people seem um, to see conscious gratitude and embracing joy as a practice that allows uh, you to trust in a greater thread of connection between yourself and your experiences, as well as yourself and a higher power. Why is it effective? Um, one of the things that motivate forbidding, forbidding joy um, is fear and scarcity. So you fear that you'll lose joy um, or you fear that you won't be able to recover from pain. Um, you, you worry that... Um, joy has a limit, or that there's not enough, or that you aren't good enough to receive it. It's got a lot to, it's got a lot to do with feelings of unworthiness um, and shame. Um, so practicing gratitude is a reminder that not only is there enough, but that you are enough. Um, and it's, it's about being grateful every day about things that you um, have in your life. So, you know, the, the support system that you have, the friends you have, the family that you have, the job that you have, um, even if it's not, you know, the, the best one, you know, it's about being grateful for what you have. There's a, just a couple of minute video I was just going to put on. I think it's there. Uh, I don't know if this will... Uh, can you click on that, Emma? only goes for a couple of minutes. She talks about this. I think the relationship between joy and gratitude was one of the most important things I found, I found in the research. Um, I wasn't expecting it, um, but what I found, you know, 12 years of research, um, 11,000 pieces of data, I, ha I did not interview in all that time a person who would describe themselves as joyful or describe their lives as joyous who did not actively practice gratitude. Um, and. For me, it was very counterintuitive because I kind of went into the research thinking that the relationship between joy and gratitude was, if you're joyful, then you should be grateful. But it wasn't that way at all. It was really that practicing gratitude invites joy into our lives. And when I say practice, I think this is, this is the part that really changed my life. It changed my family and the way we live every day. When I say practice gratitude, I don't mean kind of like the attitude of gratitude or feeling grateful. I mean practicing gratitude. These folks shared in common a tangible gratitude practice. They either kept gratitude journals. Um, some of them did interesting things like at 1, 2, 3, 4, like at 1234 every day. They said something out loud that they were grateful for. They, um, one of the things that we do, like we say grace at dinner. And so now after grace, we go around and everyone in my family says something they're grateful for. I mean, and what's interesting is when we first started, I have um, a first grader, a first grade son, Charlie, and eighth grade daughter, Alan. And at first I thought, and we've been doing it for a couple of years now, like they're going like, oh God, mom. And it, there was a little like, this is, you know, are you experimenting on us? There was a little bit of that. 
But now what's interesting, even after we did it for like a couple of weeks, that on those crazy busy nights where we're trying to like get to soccer and piano and homework, and Steve and I are just like, we say a quick prayer and we start eating, and my kids are like, whoa, what are you grateful for? And it's been extraordinary because not only absolutely does it invite more joy into our house, um, it also is such a soulful window into what's going on in my kids' lives. You know, so there are some days where my eighth grader will be like, I'm joyful that there's a huge thick wall between my room and my brother's room. You know, something just very, you know, honest. But there are other days she'll say, you know, she had a friend whose mother recently died. Um, and she said, you know, for a month she would say, I'm just so grateful that y'all are healthy right now. You know, and so not only did it make us all more aware of what we had and more willing to slow down and really be thankful for the joyful moments we had, but it let me know where she was emotionally in her life. You know, and my son is, is always, you know, I'm grateful for bugs, I'm grateful for frogs, but sometimes he'll say, you know, I'm grateful that you picked me up early, or, you know, I'm grateful that I finally understand adjectives, <laughs> you know? So it's, there's a great quote um, that says, it's not, grat- it's not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. And um, it's by a Jesuit brother, a Jesuit priest. And I guess I was just amazed to find that bubble up so strongly in the research. It's life-changing. That's just a little bit on um, joy and gratitude. Um, another uh, armor that we put on to protect ourselves is um, perfectionism. Um, so, perfectionism is a is a behavior that can be um, very self-destructing. Um, it, it, it's it's a belief that you can avoid shame if you do everything in life exactly right, um, which is impossible. Um, and an example would be trying to overachieve in something to avoid the shame in not feeling worthy enough or smart enough, um, or um, it's trying to people please in relationships um, at our own expense in order to avoid conflict um, or rejection. Uh, it's common to believe that perfectionism is protecting you, um, but in really it is um, preventing the world from seeing who you really are. Uh, perfectionism is about approval if you struggle with perfectionism, it's likely that you may have been rewarded with, for this behaviour from a very early age. Um, and the risk of being re- rewarded for this is that you eventually come to see your identity as directly determined by your accomplishments um, and you need that validation from external sources. Uh, striving per- for perfection is a recipe for anxiety, depression and addiction. Uh, it causes you to feel uncomfortable to take risks make mistakes or disappoint people without becoming debilitated by shame. Perfectionism is a shield that we carry around with us, um, thinking that it will protect us, when in fact it is the thing that is really preventing us from from taking flight into who we are. Uh, It can also be addictive because you associate experiences of shame um, with not being good enough. Um, And this becomes a vicious cycle of blaming yourself for the shame, which causes more shame, um, which causes you to try even harder to be, you know, to to be perceived by other people as perfect. And it just becomes this this cycle of never being good enough. So what can we do to combat perfectionism? Um, We have to understand that no one's perfect. Uh, That's a really good start. Um, And 
the healthy alternative to that is just striving to be the best per version of yourself, really. Um, allowing your own perception to determine this rather than what other people think. Um, it has a spectrum, perfectionism, but the, the way out is to shift from being others focused to self-focused, so not worrying about what other people think, but worrying about, you know, is this good for me, that kind of thing. You need to start trusting that you are enough um, and you can shift to that focus by um, developing shame resilience and being kind to yourself, um, resisting self-criticism, um, practicing being kind and supportive to yourself when you um, are suffering or when you feel that you're not enough. Um, another thing you can do is remember that you're not alone. Um, know that we are all in this together, um, this thing called life. Um, and there's nothing that you can experience that hasn't been experienced by others and that you're never alone, even if it feels like it. Um, another, another thing we can do is stay present. Um, so is choosing to react to negative emotions with balanced presence. Um, understanding that you don't have to identify with negative emotions. Um, if you over-identify, you can tend to be extreme in things, which can cause you to suppress or, um, or enlarge your emotions. Um, mindfulness is a good way to practice this because it allows you to, to stay centred rather than <laughs> being taken for a ride by your thoughts and feelings. Another um, armour that we do is numbing. Um, numbing really is um, it's reaching for something just to take away or escape from pain. Um, the obvious example when we think of numbing is substance abuse, um, but there's a lot of other forms which are less severe, uh, subtle, very manageable and very easily hidden. Um, other forms of numbing are um, vegging out in front of the TV, um, keeping yourself constantly busy, overworking, social media, shopping, video games, um, food, alcohol. We all do things just to, to help when we're feeling stressed and that kind of thing. Um, and it's when, when it becomes a chronic uh, or compulsive habit and that's when it becomes, um, from, from numbing, when it becomes compulsive or um, it, that's when it becomes an addiction. So... Um, Interestingly, I think we all numb in certain forms or another. I know when I've had a really stressful day rushing around at the shop, there's nothing I love better than grabbing a nice big chocolate bar and sticking it in my gob on the way home. Um, but it doesn't solve the stressfulness. It doesn't solve the busyness. You know, a piece of chocolate is a nice relaxant. Um, it makes you feel comforted and nice. A whole chocolate bar, you get home and then you go... I shouldn't have eaten that, that makes me feel sick. Um, but it's, it's those little things that's knowing, you know, but we all do it in different different ways. Um, where, you know, none of us are alone in that. We, we all do it in some point or another. And if, if you don't, then you're in a bit of denial because you do. <laughs> um, but it's more than just uh, the avoidance of pain um, and, and trying to avoid the feelings of ina inadequacy. It's that we're desperate to experience less or more of ourselves um, and the largest, uh, like everybody experiences at some point and everybody has an experience with addiction, even if it's somebody around you, uh, if it's not you, um, like it could be a friend or a colleague or a family member. Um, and what's often mis 
um, misunderstood is that the largest proportion of users of illegal drugs are actually employed working people. Um, so, you know, we may see the effects of it in certain people groups, but the largest users of those kind of things are people who have it together in our eyes. You know, we see them and we think they've got it all together, they've got everything going for them. Why can't we be like that? Um, then, you know, everybody, everybody does these things to take the edge off. Um, when, when you numb to a certain point or just do little things to take the edge off, it's not, it doesn't always have the same consequence as addiction. Um, but it's still life-altering, um, and that is because we can't selectively numb emotion. Um, if we numb the dark, we also numb the light. Um, if we take the edge of pain and discomfort, we also take the edge off of joy and love and belonging and other emotions that give meaning to our life. So um, some of the driving forces for numbing, um, the, the reasons that people do it, uh, anxiety is probably the number one reason. Um, anxiety uh, occurs um, with social discomfort and um, unpredictable expectations. Another thing that drives it is disconnection. Um, disconnection can often be mixed up with depression, um, but it encompasses a number of feelings and experiences, um, such as feelings of meaningless, um, disengagement, social isolation, um, disconnection creates a lot of pain uh, because of our biological need for connection. We went through that before. You know, we can't do it alone. We, we have a need to be connected to people. Um, and so when that's combined with feelings of unworthiness or shame and things like that, um, there's a high probability of numbing. Um, and another driving force is shame in itself. Um, shame comes into play when you become so overwhelmed by other factors that you begin to internalise everything as a result of your own weakness um, or your inability to cope. Um, and that's when you start talking down in yourself, if I could just pull it together, if I could just do this, I'm such an idiot, why did I forget that? You know, it's about, um, to, to combat shame, we need to look at ourselves and speak to ourselves with respect and just go, look, it wasn't, you know, it's not me that's a failure, it's I've done this thing wrong or I, I you know, I didn't get to work on time, I couldn't get the kids ready on time. I'm not a failure, but you know, I've, you know, I might have to work on a few things. But it's not me that's failed. It's it's life. Um, uh, you can't selectively numb. So when you do start to numb certain areas, like I said, you you know you you can numb the bad, but you also numb the good at the same time. So that's where it can get dangerous. Um, and until you until you can um, remove all these shields and armour, uh, you can't um, believe you're enough without them. Um, so you've got to give yourself permission to let the walls down in your life um, and trust in your own worthiness and give yourself permission to remove that protection. And the good thing is that each of these armours can be overridden by taking actions to demonstrate worthiness in your own life. Um, with, with numbing, for example, you can use practices like mindfulness. Um, it's being present with your feelings, allowing yourself to feel them. Um, you can notice without judgment um, what you're engaging in or that you're engaging in these behaviours. Um, you know, if, if you're feeling anxious and, um, you know, you might just feel, okay, I just want to just get out of it, I just want to binge watch something. Um, but when you notice that these behaviours are happening, that's when you can address them and start to work on them. 
Another thing um, you can do to help with these feelings is boundaries, um, setting limitations, understanding them and honouring them um, with yourself and with others. Um, it might look like knowing that a certain behaviour or habit um, leads to doing these things um, and it's lovingly uh, um, redirecting yourself to a healthier habit or behaviour. Um, you know, rather than do something, an, a healthy way to do it might be to write in a journal or go for a walk in order to process the feelings. Um, it, it could look like, you know, if it's a certain situation that makes you feel a certain way, it's about, um, you know, maybe choosing not to be around that environment or something like that. And another thing we can do to, to help with this is to lean into joy and gratitude. Um, it means being present with um, and moving towards um, emotions that perhaps could cause discomfort rather than avoiding them. Um, it's not to say you should do that if it's a toxic environment, but it's about um, potentially transforming these emotions in, like anxiety and things like that into, into good and positive emotions. Um, when, when we do this and when we can take off this armour, uh, it can allow us to fully experience life in all of its shades and develop more engaged, wholehearted relationships with ourselves and other people. Um, other things which I haven't... I didn't really put them down. Oh, other things that we can do as armour um, is, is we can believe that, you know, there's only two things in life. It's being a victim or a Viking and we've got to... You know, um, is it that win or lose or crush or be crushed or survive or die? Um, and when with this one, you tend to do whatever's required um, to ensure that you're never vulnerable. Um, another um, piece of armour is being a knower or being right. Um, it's defensiveness. Uh, it's very common. Um, and often this is driven by shame or trauma. Uh, the, being the knower, the person who knows or is always right, um, can, can save people in situations that are hard, um, but it can become a real problem uh, in a culture when only some people are valued as knowers and the rest are, um, you know, not allowed to speak up and, and talk about things either. Uh, other armours is hiding behind cynicism or sarcasm. Um, this is a big one for me that I've been working on. <laughs> I've grown up as a very, I've got a very sarcastic, dry sense of humour. Um, but it's something, uh, a few years ago at work, it, it became a real culture at work. And I remember my boss saying, every time someone says something with sarcasm, there's malice underneath it. And everyone went, oh, you know, she's, you know, whatever. And then I thought about it and I was, it's, it's, it's true. So I, I'm really, for me, that's something, a big one that I have to work on. Um, it, by nature, comes very quickly to me, um, but uh, I'm working on it. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there's times when it's okay and there's times um, when it's not. And it's about knowing that. What was the word thing, Grant? Every time you say sarcasm? Oh, there's ma ma malicious undertones. Yeah, so malice under it. So, yeah, sarcasm's always it's, it's underpinned by malice, yeah. Oh, usually, yeah, underpinned by malice. So, um, and another thing that we use is um, criticism as self-protection. Um, open, honest discussions stimulate creativity, um, but it, when we allow criticism, it can hinder innovation. Um, another armour that we use is using power over. So power is the ability to achieve purpose and affect change. Um, this does not make the nature of the power inherently good or bad, um, but what makes power dangerous is how it's used. Um, 
uh, and another armour there is hustling for your worth. So this is a kind where you jump in everywhere. Um, you, you, I guess you overcommit, you overengage in things. Um, it's uh, including areas that you're not particularly good at, and the um, it's it's striving to prove that we deserve a seat there. And um, when we don't understand our own values, um, we often e exaggerate importance in ways that are not helpful, um, seeking attention and validation of importance. Um, there's a quote by John Green. If I put it there. To love, we must remove our armour, exposing our heart, for love cannot be had without the risk of being wounded. And you think of, um, you know, I'll touch on it quickly, but even in, in the Bible when we look at the, the armour of God, we look at that, it says, Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. This is in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's um, schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, power of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, just to stand. Stand firm with the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith, which can protect you from the arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers and requests. So that's the bit on vulnerability. Um, and then connected very closely to vulnerability is empathy. I'm going to touch on that quickly, give a little bit of time. Um, empathy is a, is a feeling and a response that's not, um, it's not a default or easy to, to make response. Um, if, if somebody shares something to, with me that's really difficult, um, in order for me to really be empathic, truly empathic, I have to step into what you're feeling um, and stepping into that is vulnerability and it's vulnerable to experience empathy. Um, so when we think of responding to people's difficult things, um, we can often shame a response. So if someone says, oh, I had a really hard time doing this, you go, well, perhaps you should have done it this way. Um, and that's really shaming them for that behaviour and that's not empathic at all. Um, empathy cannot be faked. Um, if my children come to me after a day at school, um, and this happens a lot, and they come to me and go, oh, today at school so-and-so said this and then, um, you know, uh, so-and-so was sitting there and then she had this in her lunchbox and she did this and then, and then they, the other boys took that and then she left her lunchbox there and I told her that the lunchbox shouldn't be left there, it has to go back to your bag, um, but then they weren't listening and, you know, I'm standing there thinking, I've got so much to do. I've got all this stuff I've got to do. I've got to think about what I've got to do for dinner. I've got all this stuff to think about. It can be so easy to just go, look, that is not important at all. I've got stuff to think about. But the truth is, is that um, that's not an empathic response. Um, and it, it instead is, um, you know, that's their world. And we've got to step into their world and think about when we were that age, knowing what someone else had for lunch in their lunchbox was the most important thing or knowing, you know, I tended, when I was younger at school, I tended to like everything to be done the correct way. I'm not particularly a rule breaker. I bend the rules. I don't break them. Um, but, it, you know, my children are like that as well. So if someone hasn't put their lunchbox away, that is the important thing for them. Um, so 
empathy, it has no script. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Uh, it's listening. It's holding space. It's withholding judgment. Um, it's emotionally connecting and communicating the message that you're not alone. Um, empathy is the, the antidote to shame, um, and it's really important um, for shame to develop and grow. Um, it needs secrecy, silence, and judgment. Um, and with those things, it will grow and grow and grow. Um, but if you give shame empathy, it does the opposite. It starves it. It cannot grow or thrive in that environment. Um, we need to own our own stories. Um, and when you own your story, you allow yourself to get to the ending yourself. Um, and when you share your story, like I said before, you share it with people who earn the right to, to hear it. Um, we share it with people who have a relationship who can bear the weight of our stories. Um, and when we write our own story, we are the narrator of it. Um, we realise that we are imperfect but totally lovable and we share that with people who earn that right. So qualities of empathy, um, to be able to see the world as others see it. Um, so perspective taking. Uh, you share a story with me and I don't weigh in with my experience. I want to hear it from your perspective and it, that's a very difficult learned behaviour. Um, many families or people don't learn it growing up. Um, it's about understanding somebody else's experience through their lens. Um, and the problem is that when we try to do that, it can be difficult because we all have our own lens um, according to the way we grew up, the culture we grew up in and the experiences we've had. Um, and our lens is very fixed to us. Um, it's fixed to our age, our culture, our race, um, our religion, our socioeconomic status. So when we want to understand someone else's experience, we need to acknowledge that our lens is not the lens, but a lens. Um, and that the other person has a lens that's equally as valid as mine. Um, it's a learned behaviour. And if you fit the social norm of a culture, it's less likely that you had this model to you growing up because um, you were raised in a culture where your, your lens was the lens. Um, so for many people of different cultures, they're raised with a much more raised awareness and keen sense of critical awareness um, because you need that to survive. Um, empathy is, is different with parents, with our children, like I said before, because that's their world. Um, it may not be our world, but it's understanding what it means to them in their world and it's taking that perspective. Um, and empathy is to be non-judgmental. It only happens when we stay out of judgment. Um, judgment is probably one of the things I consider myself pretty good at. Um, I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> we all tend to be pretty good at judgment. It's, it's easy to do. It gives you a, a pretty good feeling sometimes as well. Um, to be honest, many of us actually enjoy it. Um, there's a lot of good data that tells us that we tend to judge in areas that we feel the shame in the most. Um, so if you're looking at someone and going, oh, I can't believe they chose that to wear, it's reflecting your own shame and lack of self-confidence in that area a lot of times. Um, and we tend to do it, we tend to do um, that with people who, um, who are doing worse than what we're doing in order to make ourselves feel better. It's a confirmation. Um, we look for validation that at least I'm doing better than someone else. Um, that's why uh, if you think about parenting, parenting can be one of the biggest um, judgment minefields 
We're always aware that we're messing it up as a parent. We're not perfect. Um, but if we can have a look at someone who's messing it up just a little bit more than we are, um, it makes us feel good just for a minute. Um, but empathy is very subtle. Um, empathy is sometimes a glance. I know um, when my um, middle child was little, she was perfectly behaved nearly all the time. And this one time, and it was the only time any of them have ever done it, we were at the shop and she had had enough and she lay down on the floor and was kicking arms and legs. And this lady walked past this older lady. Um, I was fairly young as a mum. Um, and this older lady walks past and she looks at me. And walked past and I felt crushed. I felt really crushed. And that's, you know, when I, well, I've made an effort ever since then is whenever I see someone having a tantrum, it's just that look, it's just that glance, it's just that smile that says, I know what it's like, I've been there. Me too, it's okay. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not judging, it's not drawing attention, it's just going, it's okay, we've all been there. Um, I get it. Um, we don't, when we think of empathy, we don't have to have the same experience as someone. Um, it's connecting with the emotion that someone's experiencing, not the event or the circumstance. Um, we may not have done that behaviour. We may not have been there. Um, but it's about saying, I get it. Um, I've done things I've regretted too. Um, and compassion is knowing the darkness well enough that we can sit in it with others. Um, it's not a relationship between the wounded and healed, but it's a relationship between equals um, people reach out to us for empathy because they know our capacity to sit with them in the dark times, not just tell them the things they're doing wrong. I will, I'm coming up to time, so what I'll do is I'll play this little video um, and we'll play this little video and then I'll just wrap up. This is about empathy. I thought it's really cute. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's, a, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? <laughs> um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb. 
but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. That's it. I I like that video. It's real cute. Um, But, yeah, um, connection is... um, Connection is the most important thing, and empathy, like the video says, it's it's yeah, it's being there with someone. Um, now I think my time's up. Now I did have a, a page I was going to give out. Um, I'll get them to give it out anyway. It's just a page. It lists a whole lot of different emotions, um, and it's just talking about um, you know we have so many different human emotions, um, and we tend to think of only a few for ourselves. You know, um, anger and happiness and that, but there are a lot of emotions. Um, and that when we, when we um, connect with people, we've got to approach it with not trying to fix the emotion, um, but trying to understand the emotion. Um, so I won't um, do much further in that, but yeah, um, hopefully, hopefully you've learned a little bit of something um, and it's encouraged you somewhat. Um, and yeah, thanks. Thank you, Emily. Um, was there anyone else who felt like crying at the end of that video? I'm so not empathetic. I need God to help me because I'm always like, well, at least I'm that person. You don't have to confess, but I tend to be like that. But anyway, thank you, Emily. That that was awesome. That was really, really good. And, and obviously, Emily would love to chat with you throughout the day if you've got anything else you want to ask or um, she's probably got so much more information that she would like to give but um yeah so that was really good thank you heaps Emily so who hasn't written their name down on this in these groups there's some newcomers yeah so there's I think there's only the first two have got spots so just pop your name there in one of those and if you don't know just make it up and put your name anywhere and hope for the best how does that sound so what we're going to do now is we are going to break up into those groups. So don't take too long, Julie. <laughs> oh, poor thing. See, I'm not empathetic. I'm just task-oriented. It's really bad, isn't it? So I want um, the four groups are Chris, Judy, and Monica. And Juanita, if you want to stand up. Um, and we're going to move into different areas and this probably, I've, I've sort of allocated half an hour for this to happen. So it probably needs um, fairly, doing it fairly quickly, just moving to those areas. So if you listen carefully, um, Monica, if you would, and all I need you to do is just, just form a circle, pull some chairs around. So maybe make sure you've got your handbag. Pull, pull some chairs around. Monica will be over here. Judy, you can be over in that corner over there. Can everyone shh and listen? 
Juanita is going to be out in the um, kids' room or the clothes room. So if you've put your name down to be in Juanita's group. And Chris's group will be in the foyer.